What we are trying to do is to describe the way we relate to God and show biblically how this is so. Not just because we think it's a good idea, right? Okay. So the handouts are going around. Later on, the attendance will go around. And let's start by opening up in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are the Lord of the universe. That there is none like You. Lord, we ask this morning that You would bless us with Your Word, that You would encourage us by Your Spirit. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so, God has a plan for every part of your life. We're now at week 11, the covenant and the church. We're going to talk this morning about the body of Christ and about corporate worship. And then next week, we're going to talk about the means of grace. Alright, so, where should we begin? That was pretty lackluster. Where should we begin? See, we've got to say it loud so the people on the internet later can hear you yell. Alright. The covenant of grace. Remember, the covenant of grace is one covenant. It is the same in substance in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there is only one way that God saves people. Now that is revealed progressively. We get more knowledge about it. But there is only one way that God saves people. And that is by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to us by faith. Okay? What's the main difference between Abraham then and us? There is a difference, right? What did Abraham believe in? Did he believe in Jesus of Nazareth? No. Why? Because... He didn't have Jesus in Nazareth. What did he believe? The one to come. He believed that God would keep His promise that started in Genesis 3 and that He would redeem a people by His own actions. And you remember, Abraham had that very visual image of the the covenant with God and the dividing up of the animals and going God going through and passing through. So there is one covenant of grace, one way that God saves His people. I emphasize this because a lot of what you hear on the radio and on the TV will say, no, 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 no. There are different ways God saves people. Sometimes He saves them by works. Sometimes He saves them by faith. Sometimes He saves them by the temple. Sometimes, no. There is one way of salvation. There is one covenant of grace. But we have to understand that the Bible reveals it in different depth as it goes along. So what about this covenant of grace? It is the same in substance in both the Old and the New Testament. That is, be a God, God will be a God to you and your descendants. That is the promise that we have. This promise is revealed in greater clarity as we go through the Scriptures. Come on. So what essentially happens in the covenant of grace then? God accounts or credits the righteousness of Christ to the believer. And that righteousness is two things. What is that righteousness? It is first and foremost, fulfilling obedience for us. Why is it not? Whoa. No wonder you all are looking at me like you. Hold on. Let's go out of here. Bear with me a second. Technical difficulties. Let's start over again here. I don't know why it's not coming up. Ben, do you have it? Can you at least move it to settings or something so we don't have to... So one problem with using an an Apple TV, they make you look at trash. Okay. Let's see if this works. (laughs) 
No, I didn't have this on last night. Okay. Why are we... Come on. There we go. All right. Come on. All right, let's go back to where we were. We were here. There we go. All right. So what happens essentially in the covenant of grace? God accounts the righteousness of Christ to the believer, and that righteousness comes in two things. Fulfilling obedience for us, that is the life that he lived, and paying the penalty, that is the death that he died. So salvation is covenantal, right? God created man, we looked at last week. God entered into a covenant with man. Man broke that covenant, the covenant of works. And man is now what? Incapable of keeping that covenant of works. It doesn't matter if you could be a little bit nicer than your neighbor. Neither one of you is capable of perfect personal obedience in thought, word, and deed. God, however, has provided redemption by a second covenant of grace. So this covenantal salvation is found in the true promise of God, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the ground of all of this is union with Christ. What do we mean by union with Christ? Romans 5, covenant of works. Everyone is either under whom or whom? Adam or Christ. You are either united with Adam in his sin and death and misery, or you are united with Christ in his life and righteousness. There is nothing in between. Okay? What saves you is the work of Christ applied to you because you are united with Christ. Your faith does not save you. It is an empty hand that receives the merit and work of Christ. The faith is essential, but there is no merit in the faith. The faith simply receives the gift of God. So we talked about union with Christ as being both covenantal and vital. Vital in the sense that it is critical and it is life-giving. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This means that if you think the way to be right with God is to do better, try harder, you are lost. Because the only way that you can grow and live and be right with God is to abide in Christ, is to be united with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is salvation that is found in Christ. Now, we had our review. Why start there? Why should we start with that review that we just had about salvation? Because it's found... Well, first of all, because we always review. But secondly, it is foundational. If we're going to talk about how a covenantal worldview affects our view of the church, don't we have to start with how you get in the church? That is a covenantal view of salvation. The church is the collective body of those who are saved through the covenant of grace. So how God saves us will affect how we dwell and live together. Right? So what we have then is the church is a covenantal people. How many of you have heard the true phrase, a church is not the building, it is the people? Right? It's absolutely true. If, God forbid, a hurricane swept through here and obliterated this building, Christ's church would still exist. Because it is the people. The building gives us a resource, a tool. All the church is, is the gathering together of God's covenant people in a community. So, if salvation is covenantal that we looked at last week, won't the saved, 
then be a covenantal people. If we're saved by means of a covenant and in relationship, then the people will be covenantal and will have that relationship. We talked about union with Christ bringing consequences. Justification, sanctification, and communion with God. And so it is important to start with union with Christ because union with Christ is the source of our communion with each other. You've heard me say this before. What do we call the Lord's Supper? What? Communion. Do you know why? Because in the Lord's Supper, we are brought by faith to a closer and better understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through that means of grace, we are brought to understand the the purpose of Christ's life and death, and we experience that union with Him. If we are all united with Him, then we have communion with one another. We have, to put it bluntly, something in common, right? That's what the church is. So there are three important passages here to discuss. Can I get three people to agree to read in a really loud voice? Who will? David, read 1 John 1. Who else? Steve, read Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Riley, read Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. They're up there, right? Yeah, they are. Good. Now, you understand what John is saying here in 1 John 1. We've looked at the gospel. We've seen Jesus. We've touched Him. We've heard Him. And what we are going to do is we are going to tell you the gospel. Why? Because we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And we want to have fellowship with you. And we want you to have fellowship with the Father. You see? That's what salvation is about. It is not about a get out of hell free card. It is about God building a people for Himself and He is willing to send His Son to pay the penalty for sin that He might have a people. Ephesians 3. Now, do you see this? Paul bows before the Father and he talks about the riches that are in Christ and he wants Christ to dwell in their hearts so that they can be grounded in love, grounded in compassion, and so that God can get glory where? In the church. The church is a place for God's glory to be seen. Ephesians 2. So you see here that the salvation of sinners is not the final end. It's actually an end to an end. 
The salvation of individual sinners is for the redemption of a people that will worship and glorify God. So we have one single community. Remember we talked about the unity of the covenant of grace. It goes throughout all of the scripture. Abraham, Moses, David, the New Testament. If there is one covenant and one single way of salvation and one promise, how many communities of God will there be? One. Not two. Not three, not eight. There is one people of God. There is one covenant, one purpose, one salvation. Because there is only one covenant and one way of salvation, there could be only one people of God. Now, remember, this is going to look differently. We don't look like Israel, do we? We don't have a king, we don't have a temple. We can wear a blend of cotton and wool if we want to. It's especially good with a suit. makes it a little bit lighter weight. But the picture of what we see is developed throughout the Scriptures. Remember, it's this image of the flower that goes from the bud to full bloom. It's like the acorn becomes the tree. It doesn't change in substance, but the clarity of what it is is more and more clear as we go to the New Testament from the Old. We see it, for example, much more clearly in Paul's writings than we do in Moses's. But it's the same. It's just clearer in Paul. Another example that Paul uses for us is it's like a person. The church in the Old Testament is like a child that needs help, that needs a tutor. But when he grows to be a man, he doesn't need that tutor anymore, but he hasn't changed substantively. He wasn't a frog and now he's a person. He's just a mature man. And so this community is covenantal. The Bible shows us that God's people are a covenantal community. And God does not save people for their own ends. We, we have to resist this people. We are Americans, and there's a lot of good things about that. But one of the things that we think is that it's all about us. We think companies exist to sell products that we like. We think schools exist to teach the way we want them to. We think car companies make cars the way we want to drive them. And we think that the church and God exists to help us. Now, we wouldn't say that so crassly, but what we say things are like, well, you know, I just, I don't like that church because I don't like the way their building's laid out. I don't like their music. It doesn't speak to me. I don't like the time of the service. Instead of thinking, how do I fit in to a covenantal community? It's not about me. It's about everybody else around me because... That's being like Jesus, thinking first about others and then only secondly about ourselves. Yeah, we went backwards. Come on. God calls his people to relationship and communion with each other, and this union with Christ is the source of communion with fellow believers. And so, right now, sitting in this room, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the most fundamental thing in common with every other person here that believes in Christ that is possible. Even if one of you loves sports and one of you hates sports. Even if one of you is from uh, Georgia and the other one's from Alaska. Doesn't matter. One of you's old, one of you's young. One of you's male, one of you's female. Single, married, doesn't matter. The fundamental thing that binds us as the church is union with Christ. And that is the fundamental thing in all of the universe. That's why the church is the only transnational, transracial, transsocial economic organism in the world. And the biblical view of the church is one who is a part of this kind of covenantal community. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians, 
chapter 3, Paul writes this. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. So this is your building on the foundation of Jesus. And then verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? I've mentioned this before to you. That is not the proof text against smoking. Well, you know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you shouldn't eat Oreos or smoke or do... No. It's not you are the temple. It's y'all are the temple. It is plural. The church is where the Spirit dwells. If you want to find God... Go to the church, because that's where He is. Not solely, but that is the place where He dwells among His people. God's view of the church is a unified, covenantal church. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, And all these, that is, everybody in the Old Testament, Moses, um, Samson, Jephthah, um, David, Abraham, Isaac, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. What Hebrews is saying there is, Moses, David, Abraham, every giant Bible person you can think of, who's way better than you, did not receive the fullness because God was waiting until you could be brought in. It is a covenantal, unified view of the church. Now, that covenantal body shows itself in the world with both covenant keepers and covenant breakers. Right? I mean, this is what we see. We don't want to be so foolish as to say, well, if the church is the body of Christ and the church is a covenant people, then everybody sitting in a pew is saved. Right? We know that's not the case. Because there are people that come in, sit in the pew, and leave and say, I hate God, I hate Jesus, that's why I left. They're called covenant breakers. Okay, So as a body, a covenantal body, it is made up of covenant keepers and covenant breakers. Everyone who keeps covenant with God is saved and redeemed. How do we keep covenant with God? What? Trusting in Christ. How do we know? If you trust in Christ, what makes you so special that you get to be a covenant keeper and somebody out there isn't? How does it happen? If you trust in Christ and somebody else doesn't and they're a covenant breaker, what makes you so special and good that you're a covenant keeper? How are you a covenant keeper? How are you able to keep the covenant? The work of Jesus Christ. It's not us. It's God's work in us. Right? 50 cent word? Means God works in us. Okay? So, again, just like faith, do not play games with covenant keeping. You must keep covenant. But you know what? You can't. Only God can. And God does through you. So you must keep covenant, but do not be so arrogant as to think you can on your own. God must do it. God has not changed His mind or His plan for Israel. He has simply opened up the covenant to those who were outside. That's what the whole... Incarnation, announced by the angels, announced by the shepherd's story is. It's not that God has a plan, He changed His mind, it didn't work out well, I'll scrap it. No, what He says is, essentially, what I have got going on with Israel is so good, I'm going to let everybody in. I'm going to open it up, I'm going to fling the doors wide open. And instead of you having to get on a donkey, and go travel thousands of miles to go to Jerusalem to talk to Solomon and see the temple, 
we're going to send the temple out to you. Because who's the temple again? We are. We take the temple. Every time we go out in missions, we take the temple. Every time we preach the gospel, we take the temple out to the world. Yes, Frank. No. That's correct. Breaking covenant is a persistent and firm rejection of the promises of God. Because remember, we're not the ones who keep covenant. And so we have to understand that as Christians, we sin and we're not perfect. But it is a rejection of God's promises and His provisions that we want no part of it. We don't want forgiveness of sins. We don't want to have uh, faith. So a Christian's union with Christ puts him in communion with others who are also united to their Lord. Now, what does this mean? It means every Christian's gifts are given by Christ for the benefit of the body. Now, that means if we know God equips His children and everyone has gifts to exercise because God sprinkles them out intentionally, then you have a gift and if you keep it to yourself, you are sinning. You do not get gifts to puff yourself up. So, to take an obvious example, if God has given you a gift of understanding the Scriptures, you did not get that gift so you can sit by yourself at a coffee table and think you're really smart because you study the Bible. You have been given that gift to teach others, to encourage others, to help others. If you have been given a gift of encouragement, you have not been given that gift so that you can sit on your laurels. You are to be out and about encouraging others. If you have been given a gift of administration, if you have been given any kind of gift, it is to be exercised in the body. And this is why the church has to be the people. Why on some level the church is organized and hierarchical, but it cannot do without the people. Not just because we need people to sit in the seats and give. We need people to do the work of the ministry. Because that's how God has designed the church. Yes? Yes, or, or God is going to get their attention. And usually God gets your attention. You know how God gets your attention usually? Suffering. That's usually how God gets your attention. I don't advise it. I've experienced it, right? I mean, you're right. You can't fight God, right? Every Christian has obligations to fellow Christians. There's a reason why you need to be a part of a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Jesus-exalting church. Because God has not created you, nor has He redeemed you to be separate by yourself. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. It's unbiblical. It's ungodly. Now, we do things that are unbiblical and ungodly all the time, right? I mean, we do this all the time. We need to have our thinking straightened out. But God has brought us into union with Christ and to be with His people so that we can be helped and we can help, so that we can be encouraged and we can encourage. This is not just a good and efficient way of doing things. It's the fabric of the universe. In glory, forever in eternity, we will be a corporate people, the people of God. So what are those obligations then? Assembling for worship. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. Do not forsake the assembling of each other. Acts 2, 42, they gathered together to worship, performing spiritual services for the mutual edification of the body. We see this in Romans 14 and in Colossians 3 and in 1 Thessalonians 5. These are our obligations one to another. 
we are also to relieve each other in outward things. You know, the Bible is full of those kinds of commands toward charity and help. You've heard me say this before. Back in New Testament days, when someone got sick, what did they do? They died. Because there was no such thing as a hospital. And the church went in the gap. And then when people got sick, the church helped them. When people had devastation in their in their homeland and they didn't have funds to be able to live, what did they do? Well, the old plan was they died. And the church stepped in the gap and helped each other. The Bible is full of stories like people in Greece who never met Now, you have to think about this. This is not like y'all live and you fly to South America and you fly to Asia and you go here on business. They had never met people living in Jerusalem ever. Well, one, they met Paul. They never met anyone. They didn't know what the language was. They didn't know what the dress was like. They didn't know anything about the people. And when they heard there was famine there, they took up a collection and they sent it with Paul and they said, you have to help them. Why? Because they were both Christians and a part of the church. That's how the church works. It brings us together. It unites us. There are marks of a church. So the true purpose of the church is to be God's dwelling place among men, like the temple. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to see the dwelling place of God, You got out your old-fashioned GPS and you pointed it toward Jerusalem and then you went to the Temple Mount and you saw God's dwelling place on earth. God said, this is where my name is. Now God says, now y'all are where my name is. And so the true purpose of the church is to be God's dwelling place among men on earth. This means the focus of the church should be both objective, that is, Union in Christ and subjective, a union in goals and needs because we are bound together by Christ. We should all be heading in the same direction, right? Yes. That's right. And actually, what that phrase is referring to is church discipline and and, and judgment. And so Jesus doesn't need um, anything fancy. As his people come together, he, he enforces their judgments. And so, now remember... There is, there is a, a push and a pull here. I'm not saying that an individual relationship with Jesus is unimportant. What I'm saying is a corporate relationship with the people of God is important and we deny it virtually in America and in the world today. But the foundation for that corporate relationship is that individual relationship. You can't just jump to the corporate. You've got to have an individual relationship with Christ and that brings you into communion with the rest of people who have a relationship with Christ. You see that? That means that the... I mean, in other words, objective is something laid out by God. Subjective here is as we work out the plan of God in our... It looks different in Katy than it does in Holland or in Australia. See, there is an objectivity that we are seeking to unite others with exactly, and we take it out. And so there's going to be, of a necessity, there will never be any distinction in the objective, whether you live in South Africa or Germany or the Philippines or Japan. There will be a distinction in subjectivity because Japanese people are different than Filipinos who are different than Australians as that goes out. So that gives us a unity, but it also gives us a diversity. And that's one of the things that's exciting about the church. As we think about this, a mark is to be of the church to be going upward, that is, toward God, but also outward-looking, that is, with evangelism. It is not to be inward-looking. 
This is a temptation for us, isn't it? We're worried about the world out there. And you know the phrase, right? The church of God, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is not a castle with a moat around it. It is on the offense. Gates are defensive. The church is a battering ram to knock down the gates of hell. We are on the move forward. Jerry. I think that's subjective. I think you're more sensitive to that because you're used to a Reformed church. People are more comfortable staying within themselves. You've heard this truism too, that 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America. It's because people feel comfortable being around people they like and are like them. And, and they don't do it out of wicked motives. And we're afraid. It's a scary thing to walk up to someone and say, hey, what do you think about the Bible? Have you ever heard about Jesus Christ? It's much easier to sit here in a seat with people you know well and say, you know, could you pray for me this week? Now, we need that inner focus, but we've got to also be outward looking. It is, my impression is, it has never been a difficult thing to have inward fellowship. That sort of just comes natural. But to have outward mission and focus is much more challenging and difficult. We have to be very cognizant about it. So there are covenantal characteristics of the church. First is worship, which includes the ministry of the word and the administration of sacraments. Second is the exercise of discipline, making sure that the people who are in the church are those who are in the church. And then the third is evangelism, going out and bringing in those whom God has chosen for himself. So if we think about this then, why does the church worship? It is a mark of what the church is about. But covenantally thinking, why do we worship? George, to honor God. And the New Testament is filled with examples of why it's essential to corporately worship God. In Acts 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. In John 20, we see them at worship. In Acts 1, we see them at worship. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see them at worship. It becomes a mark of who the people are. They gather together each Lord's Day to honor God, to hear from Him in His Word, and to give Him glory. And it is a covenantal obligation. So worship is not, well, I feel like it, well, I don't. No. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. What does it mean to neglect or not to neglect? Well, a Christian doesn't abandon corporate worship or consider it unimportant. Satan wants you to abandon worship, to find something better to do, to find out that, well, I'm tired. Well, I've got things I've got to do. But there's something else. I'm preaching to the choir, right? You're all here. Y'all came. It also means a Christian may not partially abandon worship by being inattentive or careless. It means when the scripture's read, you listen intently or you follow along. It means when the pastoral prayer is prayed, you pray along with them. That's why you can have a congregational amen, because you are adding your amen to the prayer. You see? You don't just come and go through the motions. That's neglecting worship. It's a covenantal obligation. Do not neglect it. Now, what does it mean to neglect? Well, in the Bible, words for neglect are like when Demas deserted Paul, left him hanging in the lurch. God tells us in His great promise, He will never leave us nor forsake us. This is not to be our attitude toward worship. 
come back. I don't know what's, I don't know what's going on with that iPad. All right. So there is a duty of worship. Now, we need to, to think about this. There is a duty to be encouraged in worship. So our souls are strengthened by the encouraging that happens in worship. We're not to neglect it, but we are to encourage one another. So what does that mean? If we are covenantally saved and we are a covenantal people that are gathered together, then our worship should be covenantal. That is, it should be initiated by God, like the covenant, focused upon God, like the covenant. Now, this cuts across all of common American mentality about this. When you ask people, what is worship? They will begin describing for you things that they like. And it could vary. Rock band, organ, hymns, songs, this Bible version, that Bible version, short prayers, long prayers, short sermons, long sermons, medium-length sermons, all about what I like. That's non-covenantal. Where does that begin? Me, 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 me. Where do we begin? God. So in a non-covenantal kind of worship, there are two main errors that Christians fall into. The first is denying the vital importance of worship. I get to it when I get to it. I'm a busy man. Right? The second is denying God's covenantal right to establish acceptable worship. How are we brought into the people of God? We are united with Christ. How are we united with Christ? We are in covenant with God. Who makes the covenant? Who establishes the covenant? Who communicates the covenant? Who brings us into the covenant? So who has the right to decree covenant worship? God does. Now that seems pretty easy, doesn't it? Most people don't get that. They think it's up to us. No, it's up to God. Now remember who worship is for. The church is a place for whose glory to be seen? God's, not ours. Not the silver-tongued preacher. Not the beautiful soloist. Not the wonderful pianist. Not the incredible prayer. No, the place is where God's glory is to be seen. And it seems self-evident that worship is to be God-centered. Now, what does that preclude? Well, if worship is directed toward, about, and for God, then a non-covenantal view of worship is dangerous when the worshiper is concerned about what I get out of worship. Or, my needs being met. I hate to tell you this. Worship has nothing to do with your needs. Nothing. Praise be to God that in His glory... Our needs are met, aren't they? But it doesn't begin there. It begins with God, focused upon God. Who is worship for? Oh, I got this doubled up here. Come on. Come on. So what is proper worship? Since God is our God by a gracious covenant of grace, doesn't it make sense that He would have something to say about worship? Now, wouldn't that include both who we ought to worship what that worship should be, and how, that is, in what manner we ought to worship. Right? Now you're saying to yourself, well, this is hard. How do we figure this out? There's a very easy rule of thumb about proper worship. Who should we worship? What should be in our worship? And how should we be in our worship? One, say it with me, two, and three. We could find the answers to those questions in commandment number one, commandment number two, and commandment number three. What do I mean by that? Proper worship looks like this. God tells us who we ought to worship. You shall have no other gods before me. Period. 
Confession puts it this way. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. Why is the confession so much wordier than the Bible there? Anybody want to guess? There's two reasons. Yes. The latter thing is to go against bad ideas. There's also, when was the confession written? After Jesus came. After Paul wrote the New Testament. So what is in there that is not in Exodus 20? Who do we worship? God. Who's God? There's that revelation. There's that progression. It's the same in substance. It's just that in Exodus 20, God didn't specifically say, although He meant it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do we do in worship? Well, the second commandment helps us with respect to this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What is the second commandment saying? Is the second commandment saying we should not worship false gods? No. Why not? Because the first commandment already said that. God didn't stutter. Right? The first commandment says, don't worship anything, anyone but what? Does that include idols? Does that include trees? Does that include sticks? Does that include frogs? Yes. So this is not just a repeat of the first commandment. What God is saying here is, don't make idols. But what else would you do with idols besides worship a false god? You would worship the true God through an idol. Wait a minute, you mean like, I don't know, like a bronze serpent in the Old Testament? Right? You mean like a piece of the true cross in glass in Rome? Right? I mean, we want to put God in our box. And so if worship is God-centered and covenantal, then we not only are only able to worship God, we are to worship God how He tells us to worship Him. So what does that mean? Briefly, the confession puts it this way. Come on. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself in the Scriptures. God doesn't leave us to our own devices. He tells us what we are to do. Now, what does that look like? Well, the confession summarizes it, but you can see it in the Bible. We are to read the Scriptures preach the scriptures, sing praises, pray, have the sacraments. These are the ordinary parts of worship. And as I say that, you can think in your minds of all kinds of passages in the Bible where people are preaching, where people are reading the Bible, where Paul is encouraging people to pray, where the Psalms are telling you to sing God's praises, right? Sing praises in His temple. And so we look to the Bible for this. We don't invent things up. It is God's worship. So He puts it forward. There is a threat there. In vain do they worship Me, Jesus says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is what the Pharisees did. They made up things and said that they were obligatory. They have an appearance of wisdom, Paul says in Colossians 2, but they're really self-promoting. Does God really care about this? Well, there's one story. You go home this afternoon and look at it. It's Leviticus 10. In Leviticus 10, they are told what, how God is to be worshipped and what type of fire and incense is to be used. And the high priests thought they had a good idea, a better idea about how to do this, and they offered up worship to God. And God struck them dead by fire. God gave in 1 Chronicles 13 explicit instructions about how the ark was to be moved. Now remember, the ark was the presence of God. It wasn't just an Indiana Jones movie. It was the presence of God. And they were to carry the ark in an exactly certain way, putting poles through rings that were to be of certain metal, and they were to carry them on their shoulders and to go through. And the Israelites thought they knew better, and they put it on a cart behind a donkey. 
And what happened was, the ark started to tip over. And Uzzah comes up, and with the best of motives, grabs the ark to stop it from falling over. And he's struck dead. Because they mocked God. God takes worship very seriously. It is why here at Christ Church, you will notice, now think back in your mind, when we have a worship service, we always read Scripture. Maybe only a couple verses, but we always read Scripture. We always have preaching. It might be a short devotional, but we always have preaching. We always have singing. We always have prayer. Because God has ordained it. Okay? Oh, I forgot to give this a good picture of them getting burned by fire. Don't get burned by fire. All right. So there is a a covenantal means of salvation. Remember that God administers the covenant of grace through His means of grace, the preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments, prayer, and praise. The third, third and finally, the third commandment gives us the how, that is, with the type of heart we are to have for worship. God tells us how we ought to worship. We ought to not take his name in vain. Not taking his name in vain means much more than don't use foul language. It means you are to speak of God in truth. And you are to do it with sincerity of heart. Okay? You shall love the Lord with your God, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So we are to worship God alone. We are not to use our own devices. And we are to worship God with a proper heart. How do we do that? Asymmetrical synergism. There is a condition. God provides and we act. And in worship, it's the same way. That is, there is proper worship. It is God's design. But we have the true worship because of God's design. God working through us. Is it really that easy? Yes. Yes. I only have one yes check mark. All right. Next week. Next week we are going to apply the covenantal way of thinking to the means of grace. Your homework for next week is John 16 and Romans 4.